You may be seated. So welcome to Esther. Um, again, if you don't have uh, a set of pages, make, uh, make yourself known and some will come to you. Uh, we are going to, today, um, just run through a quick introduction of this, this book that we call Esther, and we're going to cover the first couple chapters, and, uh, and we'll just see where the Lord takes us. Uh, the plans are to, to get a couple chapters each week, but uh, we'll, we'll just see how that schedule works. So, um, as, as just some moments of, of introduction to this, this book, um, Esther uh, records for us some of the, the latest, or we would say the most recent things in Old Testament history, um, other than Malachi and Nehemiah and parts of Ezra, there's really nothing uh, in the Old Testament that is closer to our modern day chronologically than Esther. Uh, the, the book is named after, of course, the, the primary human character uh, in, in the book, who uh, in, in uh, summary is a Jewish girl who becomes queen of Persia and saves her people from annihilation. So if you don't learn anything else about Esther, you can, you can say that to somebody like, well, what's Esther about? That's it. A Jewish girl who becomes the queen of Persia and saves her people from annihilation. Uh, historically, uh, or chronologically, you want to think about Esther together with a handful of other books of the Bible. Um, so, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then uh, Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai. Those, those books sort of cluster themselves together on a timeline with, with Esther. Uh, and you can see that uh, in, in the table that I've given you there. Um, and I've just, I, won't, I won't go bang, bang through each of those things, but it, you can just see where Esther lands. This is all... Um, after the exile, right? So, so the, the, the exile, the destruction of, of Jerusalem in uh, 586 B.C. It sounds right to me right now. And, and uh, some, sometime later, the, some of the exiles are returning uh, because of a proclamation from Cyrus. And we've, we've, we've gone through all that in, in Ezra. Uh, you can find that at the website or in the, uh, the church app if you want to listen to those things or see those resources. And, and here we are in the uh, first part of the 5th century B.C. And so the, the exile is over. Um, many of the exiles have now returned to Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt after some fits and starts. And, and here we are... Uh, the setting for this in Susa, which is one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, a um, hundred years after uh, the exile had begun, and and you know thirty years after the exiles have returned. So it's 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 a generation of people who are aware that the exile has ended or is ending, because these folks are going back to Jerusalem in in waves. Uh, some with uh, Zerubbabel, some with uh, Ezra, some with Nehemiah. But these folks that we're going to be talking about 
and their parents were born in exile and have lived their entire life you know, outside of the land of Judah and Israel. And so it's, it's an entirely different setting uh, in that sense that, that these, these folks have, have, no, they have no picture of what Jerusalem looks like. Uh, they, 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 just, they know where they are. And so that it's, it's just a different setting that, than what we would normally expect. Um, a couple of the things then that, that you would think about for folks in that situation is what we would call assimilation, right? Uh, if, if I'm born into this culture hundreds and hundreds of, and miles away from what would be called the land of Jehovah, uh, Israel, in a land where no one is worshiping Jehovah, where there, there's a worship of, of a series of other gods, um, it's just all, it's just the air that is breathed there. And so we will, we will see some things that, uh, from, from the, the characters in this book that, that sort of strike a tone of assimilation, that, that there's just uh, there's behavior that, that is it's surprising a little bit. Another thing that you wonder about, though the text doesn't specifically tell us, is whether there's any despair, right? That, that people I know have already gone back to Jerusalem, but I am still here. Um, again, the text doesn't necessarily lead us there, but, but if you try to put yourself in, in those shoes, you wonder if that is part of sort of the everyday thought and conversation. So um, that's sort of the, the background of this uh, book, some of the themes that I think we'll, we will see quite readily, first and foremost, is God's providence. And uh, just to be clear, we say that word, we talk about that from time to time, but wh what exactly is that? At least some, some person's definition. This is uh, in your notes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We're not Presbyterians, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism is really pretty good. <laughs> and uh, the question is, what are the works of God's providence? And the answer is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's a good definition, right? Yeah, there's, there's not much left out there, right? God's, God's Holy, that is his pure preserving and governing, his wise preserving and governing, that is, that is uh, through what we would call the best methods, and his powerful preserving and governing, that is um, effective, e efficacious, right, that, that, that unstoppable, we would say. Um, and uh, so we will see that... Um, Ironically enough, just screaming from the pages of this book that never mentions the name of God. That he is, he is never prayed to. Uh, he never speaks audibly, as in, you know, thus saith the Lord. There's no, there's no prophesying in that way. Uh, he, is, he is not mentioned explicitly. Um, and so... But if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you just can't miss the providence of God in Esther. Um, 
even just yesterday with Paul, he was telling me that he had read a commentary where that was titled, It Just So Happened, right? And, uh, and, 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 uh, and that this is what uh, you could see in Esther, right? That it, it just so happened that a queen uh, was put away by her fearful and hot-headed husband, it just so happened that a search was made for a new queen. It just so happened that Esther is found to be a perfect match for that job description. It just so happened that a plot to kill the king was overheard by the new queen's cousin. Um, and it was, it was reported and resolved and archived, but that new queen's cousin was never rewarded uh, for his report. It just so happened that a thousand-year blood feud was reignited um, and we'll, we won't get to that today, uh, but next week, come back. It, it just so happens that a gallows is built, but unused. It just so happens that the king has a sleepless night, and that a book of mem memorable deeds or a chronicle of, of memorable deeds was opened just to the page that recounts this story of the queen's cousin having reported this plot. Um, it just so happened that all sorts of questions and answers and actions are misunderstood and, and just send the plot of this uh, uh, book into amazing reversals and turns. And then it just so happens that that gallows that was built uh, turns out to be used not by the one who built them, but for the one who built them. Uh, yeah, so it's... it's uh, Again, if you, have, if you have eyes to see, ears to hear, you will see that this is God working, not through miraculous events, uh, but through the everyday means of ordinary life. Um, uh, one, one, uh, one gentleman has likened Esther to a chess match, a chess game where, where God and Satan are literally moving kings and queens and nobles um, through time and space, uh, the analogy obviously breaks down uh, because in a chess game, you don't know what your opponent is going to do, and, and obviously God is, is clearly aware of the entire game. Um, so God's providence, <clears throat> I'm going to digress very briefly, just a right understanding of God's providence is a safeguard for us. From, from a few things, a few extreme misunderstandings of just how the world works. Um, Matthew 10, 29, and 30, for example, tell us that sparrows aren't worth much, right? There are two of them are sold for a farthing or a penny. Um, yet not one falls to the ground without the Father knowing it or willing it, right? And then we are reassured that we are worth much more than many sparrows, um, Right? So this is a picture of God's involvement with things right down to the smallest of birds that fall to the ground. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, part of that, tells us that God is one who works all things according to the counsel of his most holy will. And again, so there's, these, are, these are good reminders of what God's providence really means. What it protects us from are a couple extremes. One is, one is to think in what's called a deistic way, that, that God created and then just sort of 
set it all loose and he's sitting back um, enjoying some sweet tea and watching things unfold but is not actively involved in the affairs of man. Right? Another extreme would be to think that, that, that God is everywhere in literally in a pantheistic way, that, that this, this podium is part God and some tree out there is part God, that, that this is the way that the world works. Uh, other uh, errors that, that a right understanding of God's providence protects us from is, is to think wrongly about what we call chance, right? Why did this happen? I don't know, just, just a chance that it happened. Right, now that's, that's, we won't go far into this, but there's, there's, there's a right understanding of chance. If I flip a coin, there is, there is a probability, right, uh, from, from our standpoint of whether it will land this way or that way. So it's right to say that there's a chance, but chance isn't doing anything, it's just describing something, right? Uh, and another uh, extreme misunderstanding that providence helps us to uh, put away is fate, right? To say that there's some impersonal force in the universe that just, just is guiding things uh, to, to a fate. Again, an impersonal force, right? So these are some things that a right understanding of God's providence just helps us stay centered and out of the ditches of, of wrong understanding. All right, so that's theme one, God's providence. Second, God's deliverance. Uh, and I've got Psalm 18.2 for you there, which is magnificent. Um, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And we will see um, God delivering his people as we go through Esther. Um, through, a, through a series of, of remarkable uh, reversals of, of everyday events. Um, and to the Jewish reader of today, um, really, uh, this would be the primary takeaway for the book of Esther. Uh, because Esther uh, is the source from which a, a, an everyday uh, not every day, a modern day celebration of Purim is, is, is still celebrated to this day uh, by the Jews. Every February or March, they have a calendar that sort of wiggles it around a little bit. But, but in the springtime, there is a, a celebration, where, and it is the, the given Sabbath when Esther is read, is uh, once a year uh, in the synagogue still. Um, and, and so they understand this really as the primary purpose for Esther is to demonstrate God's delivering hand of his people. Third, uh, God's rule. And uh, this is sort of subsumed within God's providence, especially as we talk about his powerful or unstoppable uh, preserving and, and, and uh, governing. But God is, when we say God is king of kings and lord of lords, that is, that is more than just really a magnificent set of titles. But he is, it doesn't just mean that he is the kingliest of all kings or the lordiest of all lords, but he literally is of a king. He is that king's king. He is the king of all kings. 
right? And he is the Lord of all lords, of, of all authorities and all rulers. He is the ruler over all. And that is, that is just made uh, abundantly clear uh, through Esther. I have a couple uh, passages there for you uh, from Proverbs 21, verse 1, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And that's just what a, what a magnificent picture, right? I grew up on a farm where, and every time it rained, uh, there was a stream of water that came down through the, the farmyard. And, uh, and so one of my great joys as a, as a young boy was to go out and redirect those streams and to dam up things and to watch leaves go floating down. And, and, and that's, that's a picture of just how simple it is, right? For God, the heart of the king, to just, to just like a stream of water, just this way, that way. Um, and uh, it just demonstrates God's um, power, his, his uh, rule over all things. Psalm 135, verse 6, <clears throat> tells us that whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, in earth, in the seas and all deeps. It's pretty much everywhere. Whatever. Yeah. I... I I don't know how to add to that. It's, <laughs> there it is. Yeah, you can't. Um, and a final point. It's not in your notes. It is in our hymnal, number 25. It's a magnificent hymn uh, called uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's written by William Cooper. It looks like Cowper, but it's Cooper. Uh, who was a, was a dear friend of John Newton uh, in, in England. And in fact... Uh, William Cooper is, is attributed with one of the uh, lesser sung verses of Amazing Grace, actually, uh, as, as that hymn was put together. But let me just read a couple of verses of this hymn for you. Um, I, won't, I won't bring it and force you to learn a new song on a Sunday morning, probably. <clears throat> God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Yeah, there are four more verses, but I'll let it be. I encourage you to go and see that, that beautiful hymn from the 18th century. God moves in a mysterious way. Yeah. So that's our, our introduction. And uh, so we are going to dive right in now and find our way through the first two chapters of Esther. The first four verses then of Esther 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign... He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Um, so we, we get a lot of information just sort of in this setting. We've covered some of it already um, this Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes I or Xerxes the Great, 
is in Susa. It's the winter capital, one of the four capital cities in the Persian Empire. The empire is huge, all the way from India to Ethiopia, so northern Africa, across the, the Middle East. <clears throat> um, Susa um, is in western Iran. That just you know, is kind of where you, you would uh, see that on a modern-day map. Um, and he is putting on a feast. Uh, we're we're going to have a pile of feasts here in these first few chapters. Um, in fact, all the way through the book, but we're going to have four of them today uh, that we'll see. He's putting on a feast for six months for his officials. Um, and the, the objective of it, the purpose of it, is, is given away clearly uh, in, in verse 4 that he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, right? So mission accomplished, right? He, the, the, a palace that had been built there by Darius uh, decades before was the size, this is, this is actually very timely because of the World Cup, basically the size of a soccer pitch. So, so about 100 meters long and about 80 meters across. This is, this is what the palace is, right? So uh, when you're watching World Cup, you just think all of that under, under colonnades and a roof and, and then all the pomp and splendor. This is where, for 180 days, the officials, the governors, the military were being entertained and awed and I'm sure giving much polite applause to uh, Hazarus and all of his wonderful things. Okay, verses 5 to 8. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Okay, so we have a second feast already. Now this is for everyone in the citadel. The citadel is really a subset of the city. It's, a, it's the mound or the hilltop in the center of the city that's more uh, heavily fortified. Um, <clears throat> but an opulent display, and we start to learn more and more about Hazarus, right? That uh, he is so self-important and he is so obsessed with control that he even made an edict. He made a rule that everyone could drink as much as they wanted. Right? So, so when you have to make a rule to say you have freedom to drink however you want, you know that your, your mind has gone somewhere, somewhere else than just sort of right down the middle of the road of sanity. Right? Yeah. Okay. Verse 9. Feast number 3. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Okay. 
so now we have this setting, lots of feasting, and uh, let's go right in to verse 10, which, which the section is entitled, well, that escalated quickly, uh, <laughs> which it really, really does. This, is, this, by the way, part of it is, is to, it is written to, to make us laugh at, at those who live uh, without Christ, without God. It, you'll see it. All right, verses 10 to 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And uh, so we see uh, King Ahasuerus has now shown off all the splendor of his palace, of his land, of the citadel, and now it's time to show off his trophy wife to all of the people. And so he commands her, come, and, and the reason is, is clear, in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was loved, lovely to look at. She refuses, and Ahasuerus is enraged. And so we, get, we start with escalation number one in verses 13 to 15. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Okay, so the king commanded the queen to come. She refused, and the king's response in his rage is to ask for the counsel of his seven wise men of what should be done. Uh, this, this is uh, just, it's ludicrous that this is, this is where he's turned. Rather than just, maybe, I don't know, go, go talk to Vashti. Go ask. Say, why did you refuse that command? Uh, is there something that we need to talk about in our marriage? <laughs> um, so, so there's escalation number one. Verses 16 uh, through 18, then Mebuchadnezzar said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. <laughs> all right. Okay, 
So, so this is, these, these are the wisest men in all of Persia. <laughs> I just, just want to just, just let that settle on you, that this is their panic and their logic, right? That, uh, no, 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 what, what she has done is not just against you, king. It, it is against every man in the entire Persian kingdom. That is the extent of this refusal for, for what will happen when my wife hears about it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, so there is there is just this panic to the core of these men um, to to try to figure out what to do. All right, we go on because I know you want to hear how this ends. The rest of the chapter, Mamukin is still speaking. If it pleased the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. End quote. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Yeah, so that did escalate quickly, didn't it? So uh, Vashti refusing to come has now, in what seems like just, just a matter of a very short time, maybe hours or days, resulted in a decree, a royal decree that has, has gone out to all 127 provinces that every man should be master in his household. Um, uh, even uh, detailing that he should be communicating to his family in the language they can understand. Right, so you get the uh, you 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 get the sense that that this panic and this this desire to control every detail of life is it's just rabid within a hazardous, yeah. So in in essence, uh, what what the decree said, okay, Vashti, uh, if you will not, you may not. You won't come now. You can't come. So there, take that, right. So that's, a, that's an interesting part of the decree, to, uh, to forbid what she had already refused to do. <laughs> okay, yeah. So again, this, this is, part of it is meant to cause us to just wonder with a little bit of, of a smirk at those who are outside of, of God. Those, those who, who seek to try to understand and work their way through their life just in their own strength and their own logic. And, uh, it, and, and we just think, hmm, yeah, that, that's kind of crazy. Um, so, um, grasping and clutching. Uh, all right, so some, some uh, summary thoughts <clears throat> from, from chapter one. We see just... Undiluted, just pure materialism, conceit, gluttony, pride, uh, on on full display here in in Susa. Uh, these these ironies of uh, the most powerful man on the planet, likely at this time, uh, just being turned down by his wife, 
which, which then sets off this firestorm uh, and a royal decree, right? And that was a big deal in, the, in the, the land of the Medes and the Persians. When they made a law, it could not be repealed. Um, it just can't, just can't undo it. Um, the, uh, yeah, the irony of Ahasuerus forbidding Vashti from doing what she's already refused to do, uh, it's, a, it's a curious thing. It also sets the tone for the rest of the book for us uh, and, uh, and sort of sharpens our eyes to be watching for more like this. But I, uh, I want to draw this point of contrast before we leave, and you have it in your notes there. Uh, this is a quote out of one of the commentaries that I'm, I'm using. The Lord, too, has prepared a sumptuous banquet for his people on the last day. But when God summons his bride, the church, to his banquet, he does so not to expose her to shame, but to lavish his grace and mercy upon her. And so we should be seeing the, just the, the grace, the mercy, the love of Christ uh, as our bridegroom over against this nut job, Ahasuerus, okay? <laughs> this megalomaniac. Okay, chapter 2. First four verses we read. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young, women, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. And so <clears throat> Ahasuerus, once he comes down from his rage, realizes he's in a pickle because he has, he's essentially queenless because he's, he's decreed that his queen can no longer come to see him. And so he decides it's time for another queen. And so the plan is set. Uh, there are three qualifications to be the new queen of Persia uh, is to be young, beautiful, and unmarried. That's, that's, that's it, right? It's said, said twice. I mean, it, says, it's, it says beautiful young virgin, but by virgin that means an unmarried woman. So uh, in verses 2 and 3, these are your qualifications. We go on, and now we meet the characters, uh, two more key characters in this story, verses 5 to 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother, her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay, so we, we meet Mordecai and Esther. Uh, Mordecai, his, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. He is 
most likely because his great-granddaddy is named Kish, probably a descendant of Saul, King Saul, uh, whose father was also named Kish. So different, different Kishes, but probably the same uh, lineage, um, which will become really, really important next week. Come back to learn why. Um, and we learn of Esther, whose, whose Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle. So now when you go outside after worship and you see the beautiful crepe myrtles that are around the property, you think, ah, oh, Hadassah, Esther, great. Yeah. Okay. So Esther is Mordecai's younger cousin. Uh, uh, Mordecai is raising her as his own daughter because her parents have passed away. And just one of these, it just so happens, right? It just so happens in God's providence that she is young and beautiful and unmarried. Hmm. Okay, verses 8 through 11. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Okay, so we see the beginning of Esther now being pulled into this harem, into this, we don't know how many dozens or hundreds of beautiful young unmarried women are in this group, um, but she uh, is now in this, this harem. And there are some some interesting parallels and not so parallel with Daniel 1. You, you may have, you know, heard that, right? That, that Esther finds favor with the one who is, is caring for her, right? And she's advanced to sort of the, the head of the group. She's given seven young women from the palace who I assume attend to her every need. Uh, and, and she and her group are advanced. Well, that's, that's very much... Daniel and his three friends, right? That they, they found favor uh, with, with uh, the, the, the one caring for them. Um, unlike Daniel, right, who, who refused the royal food and, and said, why, right? I, this would defile me. Please give us vegetables and water and, and, and test us in this, right? We don't, we don't have any sense of this at all from Esther, that she's, she's just quite um, happy to just go along with whatever that, that plan is in, when you're in the harem. In fact, um, she intentionally is hiding the fact that she is Jewish. In obedience to her father, as it were, her father figure, Mordecai, um, but it's a curious thing. I'll just let that be for now, but it's just, it's just note that, um, that uh, 
that there, there are parallels and not so, not so parallels items uh, from, with Daniel 1. We go on, verses 12 to 18. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, so now we, we hear of, okay, now what, how does this process work uh, and the preparations, right? So six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments and then you're then you're ready i guess i don't i don't know what happens in those 12 months what these things do that's not you know uh my wheelhouse but but that's that's what they're doing right and the process is in the evening uh one would go from the harem to the king's palace then the next morning from the palace to a second harem and again uh, unless the woman was called by name to come back to the king, then she was, she was, I guess, excluded from the competition, from, the, from, from being the new queen. Um, interesting along the way here, we see God's providence again in all things. Uh, verse 15 tells us, that Esther is continuing to win favor in the eyes of all who see her, right? So again, she's just, she's winning favor everywhere she goes. Uh, this also gives, again, some insight into what it means to win favor in the eyes of the folks in Susa, right? It's, it's not she was winning favor with all those who talked with her, right, or, or all that, the, that she served. It was all who just looked at her. He wins favor, okay? So again, the, the godless society um, outside of, of God doesn't even know how to understand and value another person other than just, you know, what you see with your eyes. Verse 17, uh, we read that Ahasuerus loves Esther more than all of the other women, shows grace and favor to her, and 
just as it would happen. She becomes queen. Huh, how about that? Um, and interestingly enough, and as we read the story, you think that this is all just, just going at a crazy pace, but we learn in verse 16 that four years has gone by now. It's, it's been four years. It's the seventh year of the rule of Ahasuerus now when, when Esther is made queen. Well, we, we can account for one year, but there's, a, there's, there's a three, three other years there that we don't exactly know, although if we go to um, extra-biblical history, we learn that, lo and behold, Persia uh, waged war, uh, an unsuccessful one, for three years with Greece. Uh, and that didn't make it into the Bible, nor, nor would have Ahasuerus want to put it into to history at all if he had had his choice because it was a miserable failure for the Persian Empire. But uh, that explains, to some degree, what, why this is four years later now. And we have feast number four in honor of Esther to introduce her uh, to uh, the people and, and taxes are canceled and gifts are given. So now uh, our king Ahasuerus is a happy guy. So he's cancels taxes. Yeah. All right, let's finish out the chapter. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here we have yet another, it just so happened. Just so happened that the, the queen's cousin is while he's sitting at the king's gate, which, which, by the way, probably indicates that Mordecai was an official within the government of Ahasuerus in some regard, because the king's gate was sort of where business got done and rulings were made and these things occurred. Uh, so, but the, the queen's cousin becomes aware of this plot to kill the, the king, tells the queen, she tells the king, investigation takes place, uh, conviction, execution, and it's written down in this book, and all the details of, of what, has, uh, what has occurred. And that's all we know for now. But it sets the stage for something later. And uh, recall as well, Esther and Mordecai are still hiding the fact that they are Jews. Not for long, not for long, next week that, that gets uncovered at least for Mordecai. But uh, we have seen, just in summary, uh, the stage set for some of the, the really dramatic action. We've already seen dramatic action, but, but for, for some of the dramatic action that is to come, uh, God has providentially moved Esther uh, into the royal palace as queen of Persia. Uh, he has uh, put Mordecai in a position where he now has uh, a chip to play later, 
although it's not, he's not going to play it, but it's going to be played for him um, in a position of favor. Um, and yet, to, to this point, um, we wouldn't uh, sing a song about daring to be an Esther, right? like we would dare to be a Daniel. We wouldn't, we wouldn't exactly do that. So it's an, it's an interesting thing that they are secretive about their, um, that they are Jews, that they are worshipers of Jehovah. That is, that is a curious thing that, that uh, we still see. Um, and we have, uh, we now know three of the four main human characters in the story. We have one more to go. Uh, his name's Haman. We get to learn about him next week. Let's pray and then Matt has important things to tell us. God, thank you uh, for Esther. Thank you for this book that shows us your mighty uh, providential hand in everyday events, even though they are in the royal court where we don't uh, circulate in our own lives. These are just everyday decisions of people that you are ordaining and moving in and through. And uh, let that remind us, God, that you are not silent, you are not still, you are not sitting by, but you are working in the lives of your people this day, right here in this very room and in this week, and we praise you and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.